Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series in the book of Matthew called The Mysteries of Compassion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled The Problem of Evil. John the Baptist had once sent messengers to Jesus asking him if he was the one to come, or should they expect someone else? John was at that time languishing in prison, and the question he asked was legitimate enough. John had been preaching that the human race was standing on the threshold of the outpouring of the kingdom of God. And there would be, he preached, a great baptism, both a baptism of fire and of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was the outpouring of the great end-time blessings. That's to say, in the, in the age to come, God would pour out a grace on his people in which all rebellion would come to an end and all people would beat their swords into plowshares and war would be no more and, and God would renew his people and making them forever his. But there would also be a baptism of fire. John said that God would burn up the chaff in the fire, and that is, he would forever condemn the guilty. Perfect justice would reign. And for this reason, said John, if you have any sense at all, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn from evil and to seek the grace of God. Looking at Jesus was puzzling for John. You know, on the one hand, the human race had never seen anyone teach as he did or do the miracles he did. The blind gained their sight and the deaf gained their hearing. The lame were walking, even the dead were being raised. Good news was being preached to the poor. I mean, it was spectacular. And if this wasn't the beginning of the kingdom of God, well, it's hard to imagine how the coming kingdom could be greater than what John was hearing about in Jesus. But on the other hand, John was in prison and judgment had not come. Where now is the baptism of fire? Now, John did not then know that there would be a time gap between the outpouring of the Spirit and the outpouring of fire. Yeah, he was a true prophet and everything he said was true. But like the valley between two mountains, which we can't see from a distance, but only becomes evident when we get there, John had not foreseen that the baptism of the Spirit would come immediately, but the baptism of fire would be delayed for some time. And he was suffering. And a short time later, he would be dead. John's questions have perplexed many. Job, while he was suffering, wanted to know something of the same thing. Job 21, verses 7 to 9, records him as asking, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. In other words, God's not punishing wicked men, or at least he's not punishing a great many wicked men. And that's why wicked men don't fear God. But if that's not bad enough, all of this is happening while the righteous languish. And Asaph said the same thing. Of the wicked, he said in Psalm 73, verses 4 to 6, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And by the way, when he says their bodies are fat, he doesn't mean they're overweight. Uh, He means they're well-fed, unlike others who have lived at a subsistence level. At any rate, Asaph goes on to say, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Wow, have you thought about that? But it's true. Many wicked people get away with wickedness until the day of their death, and many righteous people do suffer greatly. And does that bother you? And just to remember, 
And that's why a great many people want to expose some of the ethics of powerful people. They got that way by disobeying God, by abusing others, by shortcutting the rules. It's maddening to see that in a great many cases, God doesn't seem to intervene. Now, let me bother you just a little bit more. Start with Matthew 14, verses 1 to 2. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, these words might sound strange. Are we to you know, believe that Herod had not heard of Jesus' fame until after the death of John the Baptist? But it does seem so. So let's introduce ourselves to this man, Herod the Tetrarch. You know, first, would you please notice this is a different Herod than the Herod that we often think about. I mean, the man who put all those, those babies to death in Bethlehem. You know, that Herod was Herod the Great, and this Herod was his son. He's called the Tetrarch because unlike his father, he's not given the title of king. He was a governor. And we also know that this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, was governor almost all the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the very Herod that Jesus appeared before he was actually crucified. Now, it's going to be a little more confusing, so I'll try to be clear. There are so many different Herods in the Bible, we tend to get them mixed up. But Josephus, now he was a Jewish historian who lived shortly after Jesus, he called this Herod Antipas. And so, in order to be clear, I'm going to call him Herod Antipas. How did Jesus think about this man, Herod Antipas? Well, let me give you an example. It's found in Luke 13, 31 to 32. It says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, clearly, by this time, Herod Antipas was paying full attention to Jesus, and just like he had killed John the Baptist, he was now plotting to kill Jesus as well. And listen to what Jesus calls him, that fox, he says. Now, in Luke, Jesus would compare himself to a mother hen wanting to protect her chicks. But Herod was a fox. He was the one who ate the chicks. That's what Jesus thought of Herod Antipas. Well, Herod Antipas was not king but tetrarch, and he ruled over a fourth of his father's kingdom. Remember, his father is Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea, which are the smaller northern and eastern territories. The Romans were unwilling to give him the title of king, and they wanted to split up his power. Now, Herod the Great was a great builder. You know, present-day Israel is still full of the ruins of the great structures that he built. Now, Herod Antipas was not his father. Now, he did found and build a new capital, and it's the city of Tiberias, and he named it after the Roman emperor Tiberius. But it was later discovered it had been built right on top of a Jewish graveyard, and so faithful Jews simply refused to enter the city. We actually have no record of Jesus ever entering Tiberias. Well, some have called Antipas a fairly passive ruler, but others have noted that he did provide jobs for the Jews who were living in his lands. Now, we also know that he was certainly not as cruel as his father. Indeed, Herod the Great not only massacred the boys of Jerusalem, but he had also killed two of his own sons, which would have been two of Herod Antipas's own brothers. Caesar Augustus had once said of Herod the Great, you know, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. But Herod the Great also killed his own wife, Miriam, because he suspected her of adultery. 
but he had ten wives, and Miriam was not Antipas's mother. Uh, now back to Herod Antipas. Let's consider why it is that he seems not to have heard about Jesus, who was creating a massive movement in his own territory. And I think there are actually two reasons for this. The first reason is that Herod was living in Perea, that's to the south of Galilee. And the second reason is that Herod seems to have been one of those rulers who was, you know, much more concerned with his own pleasure and appeasing his Roman overlords than he was with the details of Galilee. So it would seem that the news of Jesus never penetrated, well, his castle of pleasure. Well, now then, let's consider his own personal life. And here's where the word interesting Well, it's interesting like a voyeur might be interesting, but here goes. While Antipas was staying in Rome, he stayed with his half-brother, Herod Philip. And there, while staying in his brother's house, he fell in love with his brother's wife. And her name? Yep, Herodias. In fact, Herodias was the grandchild of Herod the Great. So, in effect, Herodias fell in love with her uncle. Ah, but then she was already married to her other uncle, who was Herod Philip. Now, I hope you're, you're getting this sick little mess, but it, it gets worse. Herod Antipas and Herodias divorced their spouses, and then they married each other. And this is where the story of John the Baptist comes into this sordid story. So I'm reading Matthew 14, verses 3 to 5. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Well, you know that in the Old Testament, prophets spoke to power. That's what John is doing. What you have done, John says to Herod Antipas, well, it violates the law of God. You can't just divorce your wife, and you can't just marry your brother's wife in that way. And Herod Antipas, well, he immediately threw John in prison. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, I'll give you one answer to the question. The righteous suffer because the wicked make them suffer. Truth in Life Today has been a wonderful journey of ministry. So many thoughtful, insightful guests shedding light on challenging topics of Christian life. While now in 2020, we look forward to continuing Truth in Life Today, but with a renewed purpose. This year, Truth in Life Today is becoming more personal, more interactive. Truth in Life Today videos, both archived and current, will be easily accessible through our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or at truthinlifetoday.com. How is it more personal, more interactive? Well, each episode will be designed around your personal Bible study or small group study with Dr. John Newfeld leading the way. And every episode will provide you with study notes available through truthandlifetoday.com. So join us as we launch a new generation of Truth and Life Today. For more information or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Matthew 6, 19 to 20 says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so it seems that Herod Antipas had two concerns. 
concerns that kept him from killing John the Baptist. I mean, first, he feared the reaction of the people, and second, he feared God, knowing John was a man of God. So notice how deeply disturbing this account is. It's an account of incestuous love. It's an account of unbiblical divorce. It's an account of the deep hatred of Herodias pushing her husband to murder John. And it's an account of Herod Antipas fearing both the people and God. I mean, how is this going to end? And the answer, it's going to end badly. Now, Matthew says that while John was in prison, Herod would call for him and listen to him. Now, I can only imagine what John would have said to him. I imagine, repent. And it turns out Herod Antipas is one of those people, and you might have met one of them, and he loves to hear the word of God, but he never repents. He even feels afraid for his own soul, and he seems driven to hear more, but still, he never repents. And later, when he hears about Jesus, he thinks John has been raised from the dead because he's a superstitious man, but he never repents. Indeed, he seeks to kill Jesus. And we know from history that he would, at times, participate in the Jewish Passover and other religious events, although he shows no signs of personal faithfulness. He never repents. He loves the idea of God and even trembles at that idea, but he won't bend the knee. And all the while, his disastrous marriage is working against him. His wife is seething with hatred of John, and she knows John has denounced her as well, and she knows her foolish husband listens to John, and it's making her life miserable. I mean, how do I get rid of this bothersome prophet? You know, Romans 13 says that God appoints rulers at his will. And that brings us back to our question. God, why do you allow the wicked to prosper, and why do you allow wicked men to become rulers? Matthew 14, 6-7. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, who is this daughter of Herodias? Again, Josephus, who is the Jewish historian, identifies her by name. Her name is Salome. Now, this girl Salome was later going to marry her own uncle. And in effect, wait for it, because this is going to cause your head to hurt. In effect, after Salome got married, she would, in effect, become both the sister-in-law to her mother as well as her aunt. And I told you it's going to make your head hurt, but this is the story of a very incestuous family. Now, when this stepdaughter danced, and you have to imagine that everyone there, fairly drunk, she's dancing in an incredibly seductive fashion. And Herod Antipas is utterly turned on by his stepdaughter, who, remember, that's his brother's daughter and his wife's daughter. It's, it's immoral. It's disgusting. You know, I recently read a funny sign. It said, I don't like to think before I speak. I, I like to just be as surprised as everyone else about what comes out of my mouth. Well, it seems that is Herod Antipas. And in lust and in drunkenness and then wanting to show off his prowess, he makes a rash statement. It's intended to show his guests just how wealthy he is and how able he is to reward anyone who pleases him. And that rash vow sets off a terrible set of events. He says to her, I'll give you anything you ask for. Matthew 14, verse 8 says, Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And you have to imagine the breathless Salome coming to her mother, Herodias, and telling her the news. What what am I going to ask for? And it seems that Herodias doesn't even hesitate. You go right back in there, honey, and you ask for John's head served up on one of those expensive platters at the banquet. 
Now, there are several responses that Herod could have given at this point in time. He might have said, as Hendrickson suggests, he could have said, look, I promise you a gift. I certainly didn't promise you a crime. Or he could have said, because he knew only too well where the request came from, he could have said, I promised you a gift. I didn't promise your mother a gift. But remember, although any wise ruler would have said something like that, Herod's drunk and he's full of himself. And you'll notice that many times he's called King Herod. He's not that. He likes the title. He's a man with an inferiority complex who wants to look like he has vast power and vast wealth and can do whatever he wants. And his concern is to show his dinner guest just how important and powerful he is. So Matthew now carries on his narrative, Matthew 14, 9 to 12. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, folks, that's how the life of a man whom Jesus once called the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point in time. That's how his life came to an end. It came to an end because of a seductive young girl, a lustful, drunk, and egotistical ruler, and a hate-filled woman who always got whatever she wanted. You know, I've read books that talk about finishing your life well with, with all people speaking well of you in the end and so forth. Well, if that's your idea of finishing well, well, it didn't look good for John. Where now is the baptism of fire? And for those of you who think, you know, God would never let that happen to righteous men and women, well, you're living in the world of illusion. Think of the evidence. Let me start with a godly man named Athanasius. If you've never heard of Athanasius, well, that's a shame. He attended the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, and he defended the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. Indeed, had he not done so so ably, it seems likely the church of Jesus would have fallen into serious theological heresy and might never have survived to the present day. Athanasius is quite simply one of the great heroes of our faith. You want the rest of his story? Athanasius, during his life, was accused of murder, illegal taxation, sorcery, and treason against the empire. All of that was slander, and it was intended to undermine him. He was exiled from the empire not once, but five times. He spent about 20 years in enforced exile from his own church. Now, how about John Chrysostom in the 5th century? After preaching so effectively that he literally transformed the city of Alexandria, Queen Eudoxia, who hated him, had him exiled, and then Roman soldiers literally marched him to his death. I could go on and on, but suffice it to say, if you're a godly Christian leader and you haven't been run out of town, well, you should be surprised and overwhelmed by the mercy of God. But that brings us back to John, faithful, effective, turning many hearts to God and to righteousness, the forerunner of the Messiah, and a man after the heart of God, and yet brought down by a seductive dancer and her vindictive mother, and the ruler of the land who was just too drunk and too foolish to do anything to save his life. That's how John the Baptist went down. You know, when Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, saw the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the saints, he said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Asaph meant that he almost lost his faith. But then said Asaph, I entered into the sanctuary where God revealed to me the final destiny of the wicked. God is just. 
No, the wicked aren't getting away with anything, and in the end, Herod Antipas, along with Herodias and Salome, will stand before God, and they will receive complete and utter and eternal condemnation. Now, they aren't the powerful, rich kids that get their way. At least, they don't eternally. They are going to mourn and wail that they ever came to this moment. But that's what Matthew, the author of our book, wants us to see. You see, in this section of Matthew, from chapters 14 to 18, we're going to see Jesus offering mercy and grace to sinners. And we're going to marvel at that. Now, of course, like Herod, he's not interested in repenting, but so many other wicked men and women are. We're going to see Jesus offering grace to the suffering and condemning the arrogant. And all of that leads to a fundamental question. Shall we rejoice when wicked people turn from their sins and repent? Or should we just hope that they never repent and that they get what is theirs? And to that, we might respond by saying, be very careful what you wish for. Because the more you read about Jesus and the more you understand the gospel and the more you get a mirror into your own heart and soul, you're going to see that you too are among the worst of sinners. You too are those who deserve to be utterly condemned. And that's when Jesus will look all the more marvelous because he has come to many sinners like you in the past and he has offered them the greatest gift of all, forgiveness and mercy. Ah, the joy of that. John, I think this is a is an age-old question and something that goes through our heads often, perhaps, is that the question is, why do the righteous suffer under the hands of the wicked, of the evil? Yeah, I think uh, we have to start by saying, look, it's time to acknowledge that that does happen. The righteous do suffer at the hands of the wicked. If you have a theology that says, you know, God, you know, is always going to rescue the righteous in this life, uh, well, you haven't read the Bible and you're not looking at the real world either. So it's important to say that. And now the question is, why would God allow that? And I suppose there are a number of answers we can give. I mean, God has appointed for all the righteous that they should identify with the sufferings of Jesus. That's just a fact. The Bible teaches that over and over again. But we need to look at that and remember that's one of the reasons we are called upon to identify with our Savior so that we'll love him throughout eternity. That's just one of the reasons. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us as we continue our series tomorrow, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.